When I was a little boy, my uh, family had a telescope. And I know that childhood memories have a way of shape-shifting as you get older. But the memory that I have is that the only times that we got the telescope out to look at the planets and the moon were when it was five below zero or colder. My father was six foot three, and so he would have the telescope set so that he could look. And he would take a long time while we kind of shivered in the cold, and he said, just a second here, and he'd try to get it all in focus. Okay, there. And then he'd pick us up, and he had very strong but bony fingers, and he would get them right into your ribs, and you'd st- he'd stand there holding you while you looked it through this eyepiece, and basically all I saw was a white dot jiggling like this. Do you see it, son? Yeah, you know. Um, and then he'd say, now let's look at something else, and he'd We'd stand there, stomping our feet and being cold while he went to the next thing to look at. Um, I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 through 13. And the issue is focus. You know, there were a lot of things there that were keeping me away from a focus, right? The cold, my father's bony fingers, the problems of uh, telescopes the jiggling of my own eye, all of those things were contributing to a distraction. Paul is writing his last letter to Timothy, a young pastor. He's pastoring at Ephesus. And he's giving these instructions in these verses of 8 through 13 in chapter 2 because it's very easy to get distracted. As a pastor, it's easy to get distracted Uh, by all of the matters that are related to life in ministry. But it's certainly a word that's true for every one of us, isn't it? That it's very easy for us to get distracted and only see things as kind of a little flash of light bouncing around rather than to really focus on the things that truly matter or perhaps better said, the one who truly matters. And so, we come to these verses here in 2 Timothy chapter 2 in our series, and we're going to be thinking about what it means to focus on the Jesus Christ of the gospel. Focus on the Jesus Christ of the gospel. Will you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 13. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory." The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, 
for he cannot deny himself. Please have a seat. As we look at verses 8 and 9, we see this uh, really important call from Paul to Timothy to keep the focus on Jesus Christ. Out of all the things to pay attention to, whether they're mundane or even sinful, get rid of all of that compared to your focus on Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been a Christian for very long, you will know that the Bible is filled with the word remember. And almost in every instance, it means to keep at the forefront of your mind. So, God does some remembering. Well, how can God remember? Doesn't he, he never forgets, does he? No, it's not about his knowledge. It's about putting it at the forefront. And so, for example, in Genesis, we read that God remembered Noah after the great flood. God remembered him. Doesn't mean he'd forgotten him. It means that he's putting him at the forefront of his mind. God remembered Rachel as she didn't have children and opened her womb so that she could have a baby. It's, a, it's not that he forgot, it's that he's putting something at the forefront of his mind. In the same way, God calls the people of Israel to remember. Remember the wonders that God did at the Exodus and the, Passover, the first Passover, right? How God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, a strong arm. Uh, to remember the steadfast love of the Lord. And Paul, I believe, is calling upon uh, Timothy's understanding of that word remember as it's used in the Old Testament to say, hey, Timothy, keep Jesus Christ at the forefront of your mind. It's not like Timothy's going to forget Jesus. Instead, what he's saying is, no, keep Jesus, out of all the things you do in your busyness as a pastor, keep Jesus Christ at the forefront of your mind. And out of all the things that you're engaged in or will be in this coming week, keep Jesus Christ at the forefront of your mind. Now, he gives three ways to describe this. First, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Now, that's something that we can see is very clearly part of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose from the dead. And so, to keep at the forefront of our mind, Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead, that means that Jesus is victorious. He's victorious over sin and Satan and the grave. And as a result, when we keep Jesus at the forefront of our mind, we keep victory at the forefront of our mind. You know, there's a lot of things that can cause us to feel defeated as believers these days. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Victory is ours. It also means, Jesus being risen, means that Jesus is active right now. Jesus is active right now. And so we can remember his active work right now. Here's one. Jesus said that if he goes, he's going to prepare a place for us. Now, this is using a little bit of glorified imagination, but um, let me try to explain a way I think about this. I believe that 
Jesus, according to Colossians 1, was the one who spoke everything into existence in Genesis chapter 1. And he did everything that we see, everything that we know exists, was made in six days, right? By his spoken word. Now, if that's true, and Jesus said when he was leaving, he's going to prepare a place for us. And since that time that he ascended into heaven in the first century AD, until now, he's preparing a place for us. And he made everything that exists right now in six days. Imagine what the carpenter from Nazareth has been able to do in these succeeding centuries. It's, it's glorious to consider to contemplate. He's active right now in preparing a place for everyone who believes in Jesus. Not only is he active in that regard, but the scripture tells us that he is making intercession for us. He's pleading our case so that when we lose our focus on him and we fall into sin or disobedience, it's almost as though Jesus, seated at the right hand of God the Father, when we sin, turns to God the Father and he says, I paid for that. With the price of my own blood, I paid for that. He pleads our case. So when we remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, we're remembering he's victorious. We remember that he's active right now in preparing a place for us and being our advocate before the Father. And it means that he will do what he said he would do, which is become the king of an eternal kingdom, right? So remember that Jesus is risen from the dead. Now that's a pretty, you know, if we were going to guess how we would remember Jesus Christ, this risen from the dead would be one way that most of us would probably come up with to say that's a good description of how to remember Jesus. But the next one is one that we probably would not come up with. The offspring of David. That's kind of an unusual thing to remember, isn't it? Well, it is until you recognize that this is a description to say that Jesus is the rightful king. He's the rightful king of Israel in particular, but of the universe in general. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, as Revelation chapter 5 describes. He's the fulfillment of prophecy, and all of the things that he promised to Israel in the Old Testament are going to come true, and guess what? We who are believers in Jesus as Gentiles are grafted into God's glorious kingdom. We get to be a part of it. So when we remember Jesus, we remember he's risen from the dead, he's victorious, he's preparing a place for us, he's advocating for us, he, everything he said he would do, he will do, and he is the rightful human king, the fulfillment of prophecy and the promise to Israel. The third description of remembering Jesus is found there at the end of verse 8, as preached in my gospel. What Paul is saying here to Timothy is that these truths are not contrary to what you've heard from me. In fact, they are what I have always proclaimed. 
It's part of my gospel, my good news. Now, the gospel is described in various ways in the New Testament. One way it's described is as God's gospel, right? So, 2 Corinthians 11, I preached God's gospel to you free of charge, or Mark chapter 1, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, or uh, Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. It's also described in the New Testament as the gospel of Christ. Uh, doesn't want to put an obstacle in any way of the gospel of Christ, uh, 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2, I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. Philippians 1, only let your lives, your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, Through the New Testament, you have these descriptions of the gospel as the gospel of God. It's God's gospel. It's the gospel of Christ Jesus. It's Christ's gospel, and it's the gospel about Jesus Christ. But here, Paul says, as preached, as proclaimed in my gospel. You know what that means? It means that it's not just God's gospel for Paul. It's not just Christ's gospel. It's his gospel. It's his message. Now, in one sense, this was peculiar to Paul as the, as the apostle to the Gentiles. God gave him special revelation that made it in particular his gospel. But the question still remains for us, is it your gospel? Is it your good news? You see, there may be some here for whom you've grown up knowing the gospel of Christ. You know that Jesus died for our sins. You know that he was buried. You know that he rose from the dead. You know that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But you've never personally believed in Christ. The gospel is God's gospel. It's Christ's gospel. But it's not your gospel. The call that I believe God is calling on you right now in this moment is to make it your gospel. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Now, as we go to verse 9... Remembering Jesus Christ, placing Him and the gospel first at the forefront of our minds and our hearts, is going to involve suffering. For Paul, it meant the chains that would lead to his death. He's writing this last letter in his second imprisonment, and he did not get released from this second imprisonment except by death. He was regarded as a criminal for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. Now, for you and me, it doesn't mean that. We are not bound with chains as a criminal about to be executed for our faith. But there's certainly in our world today a purposeful misunderstanding of Christians. 
I see that happening, that people purposefully misunderstand Christians and the Christian message. They purposefully misunderstand the motives of the Christian. And that leads, because they keep proclaiming it to themselves over and over again, that that's what they think Christians are and do, that leads to stereotypes that cause people to reject the Christian message before they really hear it. That could lead to some serious discouragement on our parts, can't it? Ah, but keep reading the verse. Look at the last sentence of verse 9. But the word of God is not bound. Oh, there's going to be some serious misunderstandings of the Christian and the Christian gospel, and there's some suffering that's involved, but the word of God is not bound. We need to keep in mind that despite the efforts of those who distort the gospel and distort who Christians are, despite the assumptions that people make, the word of God is not bound. It's not chained. The only limits to the word of God are our failures to proclaim it. It's the only limit. It will accomplish its purpose, calling people to salvation. Keep the focus on Jesus Christ. Now in verse 10, we are called to endure hardship for the sake of those who will come to Christ. That we endure hardship for the sake of those who will come to Christ. Last week we talked about the Christian's mission of calling people to faith in Christ. Here, Paul says, endure hardship for the sake of those who will come to Christ. Our mission is filled with hope even as it is filled with difficulty. Paul says in verse 10, I endure everything, all suffering and misunderstanding and accusation, I endure it all for the sake of God's elect. Paul's knowledge that there are definitely people out there who will trust Christ emboldens him to endure suffering. It's like he's saying, I can do this suffering because I know that the gospel is going to find root in some people. No, Paul does not know who the elect are, and neither do we. We should never presume, by the way, that we do know. Sometimes we almost say to ourselves, well, I won't tell them the gospel because they would never believe it. Don't ever do that. You don't know how, what God's doing in people's lives. Instead, what do we do as believers? We throw the seed of the Word of God out and set loose the unbound Word of God and watch God save His elect. This is why Paul writes this last part of verse 10. His goal is to proclaim the good news so that the elect will obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, here we're going to get into some pretty significant theology. We know that God elects some to salvation. But we do not know whom he elects to salvation. But it is important to look at this verse carefully and recognize that election does not save anybody. The only way of salvation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The elect are not saved 
until they believe in Jesus. So Paul believes that he is on a mission that is guaranteed of success. He endures suffering and proclaiming the gospel so that the elect, whom he does not know, might obtain salvation in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This resolves a question that we might have as it relates to the biblical doctrine of election as it's taught in the New Testament. The question that we might ask is, if there are people who are chosen before the foundation of the world, well, then that's going to happen to them no matter what. Uh, We don't need to risk our lives to save them. God's surely going to do it. Paul says just the opposite. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus. The fact that there are elect doesn't stop him from preaching or stop him from suffering. Instead, it makes him confident that his preaching and his suffering will not be in vain. Uh, This was illustrated, by the way, in Paul's life in Acts chapter 18. He had gone to Corinth and um, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. Listen, for I have many in this city who are my people. They hadn't heard the gospel yet. And God's saying to Paul, I have many in this city who are my people. What that means is that Paul's proclamation of the gospel when he went to Corinth was certainly going to be effective because God had his people already prepared there. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? And so we can, uh, Luke concludes, Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. We should never presume that we know who's going to respond to the gospel and who won't. Rather, we are God's instruments to bring the gospel of salvation to his elect. Always know that our efforts in proclaiming the gospel will have their divinely intended effect. Now, this leads to another thought, too. If the elect are not saved unless they believe the gospel, if that's true, then That means there's no other way to salvation apart from the gospel. There's no second chances. It's not like you're going to die and God says, okay, I know you didn't believe in Jesus when you were alive. Now I'm going to give you another chance. There's no second chances. There's no such thing as universal salvation. It's not like God's going to say at the end of time, oh yeah, 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 I know what I said about Jesus being the only way, but I changed my mind. Everybody just come on into heaven. That's not going to happen. If the elect aren't saved unless they believe the gospel, there is no hope apart from gospel hope. What we should marvel at, rather than being puzzled over why aren't there lots of ways of salvation, what we should marvel at is that God has provided a way of escape for us from eternal punishment and welcome us into his eternal glory. That's why it says there in verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's ours. 
When we believe in Christ, it's ours. There's no other way except God's way. It's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's why Peter said in Acts chapter 4, there's salvation in no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. I recognize that that is not a culturally convenient thing to say. People today want to believe that there's lots of options and lots of ways and that there's a lot of human autonomy. But God is clear in his word, the way that we are made right with God is through believing in his son Jesus to forgive us of our sins by what he did at the cross and that he rose from the dead so that we too will rise with eternal glory. This is the good news. And so we keep the focus on Jesus We endure hardship for the sake of those who will come to Christ. And then thirdly, we remember the promises of God. We remember the promises of God. This section uh, reminds many people of a hymn, and perhaps it is an early hymn because of the rhythm of it, to remember the promises of God. Verse 11, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Those who die to self will live with Christ. Jesus said in Luke 9, if anyone wants to come after me or follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He says in John chapter 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. All that's wrapped up in this dying with him means to die to our own kingdoms, die to ourselves, that we may live for Christ and him as king. The second line of this perhaps him, is found in verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. The message of salvation may begin in eternity past with election, but it ends with what's called the perseverance of the saints, the saints who endure. So consider James chapter 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Or Jesus' own words in Revelation 2, verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Dying to self and enduring with Christ. These are messages that are not all that palatable in this day where we want to make things easy. A.W. Tozer was a man who challenged the Christian church's love of ease. And in his book, The Root of the Righteous, he writes these words. In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne 
until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain kings within our little kingdoms and wear our tinsel crowns with all the pride of Caesar, but we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. If we will not die, then we must die. And that death will mean the forfeiture of many of those everlasting treasures which the saints have cherished. Our uncrucified flesh will rob us of purity of heart, Christ-likeness of character, spiritual insight, fruitfulness, and more than all, it will hide from us the vision of God's face, that vision which has been the light of earth and will be the completeness of heaven. Those are sobering words, aren't they? But they remind us of Jesus' own words to deny ourselves and take up our cross and to endure in this world, keeping our focus on Christ and his good news to the end. The third line of this perhaps song is found at the end of verse 12. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Here I believe that Paul is warning about the possibility of a false profession of faith. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus says these words, Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Uh, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2, verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Um, there is such a thing as a false profession of faith. And when people profess Christ, but in some false way, it's not genuine, there is this warning to deny Christ means that he will deny us. Last line of this perhaps early Christian song, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. This has, I think, two senses to it that I want to try to unpack for you. The first sense is hopeful and encouraging. It is, in fact, that Christ upholds the weak. There are some who are, from in momentary lapses, are faithless to Christ. And Christ promises to uphold the weak. Luke 22, Jesus predicted to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is about Peter who denied the Lord, who had that moment of faithlessness that Christ was faithful to him and restored him. 
But there's another sense in which this line of this verse, verse 13, um, suggests a warning. If the parallel structure suggests anything, it also suggests a warning. What it, what it possibly suggests is that if we are faithless, He will be faithful to carry out His judgments. <laughs> if we're faithless, He'll be faithful to carry out His judgments. In my decades as a pastor, I can confirm to you that the most miserable creature, the most miserable creature is the faithless but nonetheless genuine believer. A person who has genuine faith in Christ but has made a moment of faithlessness in their actions, in their beliefs, in their priorities. That is a miserable condition. So, if we look at this word faithless, we see that through the New Testament, and it's an interesting um, construction, but if you look at it, you see that through the New Testament, it refers to two kinds of people. One is the kind of person who has these momentary lapses of faithlessness. And the other is the person who has made a false profession and doesn't really believe and never has. Both kinds of people are described by, in the New Testament by this word, faithless. So, for example, in Luke chapter 24, uh, the announcement about Jesus' resurrection, the disciples were faithless. They did not believe. Luke 24, 41, they still disbelieved for joy. Um, but in Acts chapter 28, verse 24, Paul's preaching, some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Same word is used. And so here you have groups of people who have momentary lapses, but also groups of people who never believe. And both are described by this same word. So that's why I suggest that there is both here in this line a, an encouragement, Christ upholds the weak, but also suggests the warning. And the two people that I'll bring forward to you to describe this are Peter and Judas. Peter had a momentary lapse and Christ upheld him. Judas never really was a genuine believer and faithless in that sense and caught all of the condemnation that comes to such a one who never repents. I don't know if you're in some faithless state. I cannot tell for you that you are a Peter or that you are a Judas. What I can tell you is to run to Christ and become a person who believes in the wonderful message of salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. Turn away from that faithlessness. Turn away from that living for self and turn to Christ. And we will see that the truth of the hymn that we sing quite often here will be yours in experience. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. 
for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. It's my prayer that you will say that along with Paul and say, yes, it's my gospel too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to keep our focus on Jesus Christ at the forefront of our minds. Whether there are mundane things or sinful things that will distract us, help us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and run to Christ. I pray that anyone here who does not call the gospel my gospel would do that right now, that they would trust in Jesus to forgive them of their sin, even though they may have heard and known the gospel for many years, perhaps even explained it to others, I pray that they would make it their own today. Help us to recognize that we don't have to be afraid of proclaiming the gospel. Even though we may suffer for being a Christian, the word of God is not bound and help us to endure everything for the sake of the fact that there will be people who will respond to the good news. Now, Lord, we, we pray that we would die with you in order to live with you, that we would endure in order that we may reign with you, that we would not deny you, and that even in those moments when we're faithless, we would recognize that you're the one who holds us. Thank you for your love for us and your goodness. In Jesus' precious name, amen.